Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hi. Today on the show, we're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to talk about the invisible man and specifically narcissistic abuse within that, the representation of that within the movie. We thought it'd be a good jumping off point. So for those of you who don't know, The Invisible Man is a movie that came out this year, uh, written and directed by Lee Whannell, who you may be familiar with from the Insidious franchise or the Saw franchise. Did, did Lee Whannell also do The Haunting of Hill House? We can. No, Lee Wanell. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah. I thought you were saying, did you want to talk about oh, it? Oh, no, I was, didn't Lee Wanell do Haunting of Hill House or making that up? I don't know. Oh, look that up because I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm imagining that, but maybe I'm not. Um, so I do, he probably did because it does have the, like the master of tension building. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's one of the things he does the best mm. is, uh, what both those franchises have in common as well as this movie is the ability to build that tension, which, um, is, yes, I think that was him. Sorry. Cause he also casts one of, um, Oliver Jackson Cohen, who stars in, yeah, they're both, they're, he's in both this and Invisible Man. Perfect. Yeah. Um, he directed The Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So this movie stars Elizabeth Moss. Uh, Man, I was just saying to you off, off, you know, when we weren't recording, just one, how great of a year she's having, but two, yeah, just how really absolutely is. incredible she is. She's excellent in this film, and it's one of those performances where you can't really imagine it going any any better with a different actress. In other words, I I think her ability to be um, to represent feelings on her face, which is you know we know that to be an actor's job, especially a film actor's job, but and it's still rare <laughs> sometimes, mm -hmm. but. We empathize with her and believe her so vividly, at least in my opinion, mm -hmm. that that's what how this not only does the filmmaking and the tension building make it exceptional, but um, to take a universal monsters, you know, property and turn it into a contemporary story. I mean, this is not your original monsters, invisible man. No. This is. Um, I'm personally happy it's not the original Universal Monsters. I think, I think it was, like, I think this is a wonderful addition. I think it was a clever way of using horror. We've talked about this with Jordan Peele and his movies in more of like sociopolitical ways. I think it was a, a really, really clever way of using a metaphor to describe an abuser, more specifically an emotional and or narcissistic abuser you know, like being haunted by someone nobody else can see. Yeah, it's 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 perfect. The metaphor is perfect. It's yeah. So you know, the writing. I mean, Lee is. I just I like his movies. So yeah, I'm great. all about it. They're they're never anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean, this could have easily been exceptionally cheesy, um, mm -hmm. but because he, I think because he leaned into the psychological horror of it, um, which he often does not always but often uh, i think that's what makes it succeed now are there plot holes and inconsistencies absolutely <laughs> uh, 
Absolutely. I mean, there were moments it, I had to actually go back and go, wait a minute, what? What? Yeah. Just oh, there's a couple of things that are that are quite vivid about the movie that you go like, OK, so that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, OK, that horrible thing just happened in a crowded restaurant. There would be cameras. Somebody would have videotaped it. Oh, and then there's this problem of how is the invisible man getting around town? Like, yeah. can he just transport himself, yeah. you know, via his mind anywhere he wants? I mean, you know, so again, little plot holes, a little inconsistencies. These have all sort of been talked about in reviews and such like that. But what we're looking at really is the performances, uh, the filmmaking, and also the way that a narcissist and the person being abused by a narcissist in a relationship and the way that was like portrayed in this movie is really kind of our focus. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, I thought there was a lot to be looked at as far as that's concerned. So, there was. you know, just to start out lightly, um, her husband dies and is a narcissist. They live in this very stereotypical, you know, there's a lot of tropes in here. <laughs> very stereotypically vacant kind of wealthy home that's cold and sharp edged and, you know, what you imagine a serial killer lives in or a very, very rich serial killer lives in. Like they used to portray them in the 80s TV shows. But that all mixed in with like this, you know, ocean view like all the yeah. windows all the tropes are there it's northern california right i think they're I in northern remember. yeah i think they're in the bay area it's i mean the house is i wouldn't particularly yeah live in a house like this but it is gorgeous in the sense that it's clean when we think about <laughs> um either at least the uh, many narcissists there's this and we saw this with christian bale's character in american cycle this very pristine perfection everything has its place everything is just completely yeah, if you don't uh, want to touch anything, it's perfect. If you read these crime thriller novels by Lawrence Sanders back in the day, there's a bunch of them. His very first one is called The First Deadly Sin. And these were books I totally fell in love with as a young person. Um, and the first few chapters, the, all the books are about this like cop and his relationship with this killer. And it's exactly that. And I'm sure American psycho, like all these movies are ripping from that. And he probably ripped sleeping it with the enemy. Else. Remember? Yeah. With the towels. That's another really yep. good portrayal of narcissistic abuse. It absolutely That's a great is. movie. I mean, he was more, I think he was like, clearly he had narcissism as well, but he was clearly a psychopath that guy, but that was, um, that's another really good one that depicts what she went through yeah, and all of that. Yeah. So Elizabeth Moth's character is, um, you know, trapped in this controlling relationship and he's a wealthy scientist. So take that to, in your thought process about like how he becomes invisible. Like they have this somewhat sort of kind of plausible way that they have him invisible because he dies hypothetically. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. We think he dies and, then he's invisible and then the haunting begins. And so, but you know, besides if it all, I think it cuts together clean enough to follow the movie. You don't dismiss it. No. It, and also to be true to any narcissist as well as he has his enablers in this movie. You bet. Right. You who, bet. who help him get what he wants. That's right. So, which is usually the victim. Mm -hmm. It's usually control of the victim. It's not about love, but right. So she escapes. She so before he dies, she escapes. Uh, Moss's character escapes in the dead of night and disappears. So we already the whole first section is 
we're starting in the middle of the action, which is super important for good movies, in my opinion, and good writing as well, is we are dumped right into the middle of the action. She's already got a plot and a plan, and she's getting out. So we already know that she's been being controlled and abused. I mean, we find out that later, like all the facts, but anyone who has been in a narcissistic relationship or been narcissistically abused is going to recognize and possibly have, you know, there's a trigger warning for this movie with that because right out of the gate, you're dumped into the very pinnacle of crisis where she's trying to escape. So, and also can I, if I can just add to you, clearly she's had some sort of epiphany because if you're, if you're trapped in a cycle of this, it can take a long time to get out so we don't, it doesn't really give us a timeline. I don't think they've been together for a few years or something, but something has happened. She's finally gotten to the point where she's ready to break that emotional cycle. Yeah. They're married and right. Which is very, I mean, it's, it's if, like Shannon said, if you've been in one and experienced it, um, it, that is a very, very difficult decision to make because you're, there's traumatic bonding and things that happen. So we're clearly meeting her at a place where she's some, something has happened enough, whether she's. We don't know what the backstory is. But. Well, I kind of, I kind of, so I, I would throw in there that we find out later in the movie that he wants to have kids. And that's one of her inciting reasons for getting up her own courage and her own motivation to go mm. is um, the emotional reason for, you know, is that I, you know, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's bad enough that he treats yeah, me this way, but I'm just not this. doing that. So I've really now <clears throat> got to make a decision. And so I wanted to bring that up because I think where you were going was like how something happens usually Yeah. to mo to finally tip over the edge to, it has to get pretty action. bad or there has to be something at stake. And we also know in a, in a typical, well, it doesn't have to be heterosexual because you can have two women in a relationship, but uh, if if the narcissist has a pregnant partner, also the amount of abuse and um, I mean it's it's like twice as bad. Yeah, when someone's going through a pregnancy in a relationship like that. I would imagine that would be part of the reason he wants children is to have her in a position of more vulnerability, and then someone else to control. Yeah, and, I mean a narcissist wants a mirror, and right. so children are just that exceptional for that for many years mm -hmm. and then that creates its own abusive situation as we know mm -hmm. so i didn't know if you wanted to talk about sort of qualities of narcissistic abuse or a narcissistic's personality or where would you like well to i mean i think start, we can maybe think? just start with like the just the real basic like I mean, what is it yeah i mean one of the things that i like to bring up because i'll have people i know you and i both have a, a focus in this and we have a lot of um I don't know if you want to call it expertise or it's just a niche of ours in our work. And I see a lot of survivors of this is one of the things I think to maybe address is people who get into narcissistic relationships um, are not always people who have been in abusive relationships prior. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because narcissists, unlike a lot of other emotional or physical abusers, mirror the victim at the very beginning. So therefore, they don't come off as, you know, and we think of, I'm not a big fan of this word, but I'm going to use it. When we think of like a codependent relationship, it's often someone who's very drawn to that initial chaos. And um, for myself, like I'll just disclose here, that wasn't the way this person presented themselves to me when I, when I initially met them. And so there is this really big um, deception at the beginning where, where they 
create this um, obsession and love bombing and they, they mirror you because they want that mirrored back. Um, and I, I think that's very unique to an, a, 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 an emotionally abusive cycle that we don't see with all emotional abuse. Cause people are like, well, what's the difference? So I think it's very different. Um, so I, I would definitely say that for me, that's a big differentiation between that and other forms of abuse. Yeah. That's part of, the way they manipulate. And so I would mm -hmm. say like the way they manipulate is unique. You know, we're all manipulating all the time in relationships, mm -hmm. but yeah, the way they, um, generally speaking, um, manipulate is, is kind of specific in that mirroring and bonding. And, um, but there's lots of red flags, of course, that mm -hmm. when you aren't used to, or haven't been in a relationship like that before, or don't, necessarily have a parent some people don't even have a parent that's narcissistic because sometimes sometimes we get into narcissistic relationships with narcissists because it's it's familiar yes yeah. uh you know you have a parent you have a mm -hmm. a sibling you have an aunt or an uncle or an early right. coach or whatever that you had a good what you thought was a good relationship with what and if you look into it further it actually was really very one-sided yeah. and it was like you worshiping them and them right you know calling the shots um and so some of the things that happen like gaslighting where someone says oh i i never said that i don't mm, I, that i'm not crazy making yeah. right and and in the beginning of a relationship i think you know especially if you're having sex and you're you're falling in love with this person it's like we we forgive people a lot of things i mean there's all been always been times in relationships with friendships whatever where someone goes i don't think i said that or what? I didn't say that. And the other person goes, I could have sworn you had. And there's really no meaning to manipulate. It's just they're remembering it differently. So we give them passes. Yeah. And you know? especially if sex is involved, because then you have just that energetic, ex the energy exchange. And you, when we have sex, whether you're man or woman, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of energy exchange. There's a lot that you're giving away mm -hmm. um, that changes the dynamic. And so like, to your point, a lot is initially forgiven at the beginning because- there's all these chemicals bursting. It's Absolutely. like someone dumped dopamine on you. <laughs> That's right. And think about this person is mirroring you and mm -hmm. all of your likes and desires. And it's like the best friendship you've ever had. And you're having sex. And they essentially become you. Yeah. They become a version of you. And we fall in love with the mirror. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's not real because the narcissist doesn't have its own self. Mm -hmm. And so they're just buying off of you. Um, it's really crazy. If you think about, if you just stop there for a minute and you think about, um, and with narcissists, you know, so much of this is their, this defense mechanism. We'll get into narcissists in a moment, but how all of this is really just a reaction to the defense of the true self and their, their fear. Um, and so to think about the fact that they go as far as creating a version of you just because they need your mirroring so bad and they need a sense of self so bad. And this is where the exploitation, all that happens. They're not, they think they're in love. Oh, absolutely. And they're, and they usually, I mean, in, in sort of the, in real world examples, stepping away from the movie, <laughs> but in like real world examples, it's often that they aren't consciously doing or they would never admit to it, but they're picking someone they actually admire, mm -hmm. that there are qualities about that person usually, and they'll even say it. 
you know, wow, you're just such a much better person than I am. And they'll say all these kinds of things, especially in the beginning before yeah. it sort of turns. And um, it feels really good. For and that person. you feel admired yeah. and you feel like that special, person unique is making you feel special as if um, there isn't anybody, you know, they'll often say things like, I've never met anybody like you before. They'll say, I love you really fast before they even really know you. Um, there's a lot of red flags that you that you know if you know. Lavish gifts. They, they'll buy things. An example might be, here's another thing too that happens, is you feel really special because they want to know a lot about you. Oh, yeah. They want to know a lot about you because they want to, that's part of learning how to manipulate you. So they'll... For example, let's say Shannon and I are in a relationship and we're starting to date and I ask her, where's where's one place you've always wanted to travel, right? And then within the next week, you have first class tickets to Bali or whatever. And yeah. you think it's because, oh my gosh, she he, she's listening to me. That's right. And it's- She's like, the most amazing person ever. <laughs> that And I've had friends who that's happened to and I try really hard to not be the psychologist in that situation, but I have said like, wow, that- that seems really fast. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Because you know, you, you know what's about to happen, but you have to let that person live their life. Absolutely. And then... And so, they won't believe you anyway. No, no. You have to let the person um, do it at their own pace, but then also, you know, be a friend and listen and try not to get too far ahead of where they're at. But if you see opportunities to sort of like say, oh, that doesn't I mean what do you think of that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah why do you yeah and the, and then you know once once this cycle starts to wear off because it does if you think about this almost like um the victim develops almost uh well not almost the the victim develops a, a sort of a sort of addiction to this new source this yeah. narcissist because the narcissist in the love bombing phase which is the most dangerous phase is what what gets the person hooked, um, and then and then really feeling like oh, oh here's another thing the narcissist will do too and this is relevant to what I'm about to go into is they'll tell you their sad stories they'll tell you they were abused they'll tell you all these things so when you have someone who's in an, uh, the victim in the situation who typically has a lot of empathy which is why they choose you whether it's um, too much empathy or or just enough. That, that's another way that they really kind of bait you in. So once that love bombing stops, because it does, the narcissist goes, okay, I'm all out of that. I've got this person now. Whoo, I can take that mask off for a while. Uh, I've got her or I've got him. Um, the victim stays when that devaluation phase starts, which we'll get into because now that person's like, oh, I want to, I really want, to understand this no one's ever understood this person i want to be that person yeah i mean something that doesn't often get concentrated on and isn't the most popular part of this conversation so i'll just throw it out there and we can get to it later or not get to it at all but i definitely want to just throw out there that you know what doesn't often get talked about but does get talked about like in therapeutic rooms and therapeutic settings uh, when there's a privacy and a vulnerability and a safety is that there are a lot of qualities that the the person who is the victim in this situation there are lots of qualities that they have mm -hmm. and 
and there's a reason why they're susceptible to this. Mm -hmm. And we can't necessarily generalize why mm -hmm. every person is susceptible to this. So I don't want you as a listener to go like, well, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not like that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that often there are themes of codependency. Often there are themes of having kind of hero or rescue complexes where you feel like you can change people. Often there's like a narcissist in that person's future that was very important to them. Um, many times, um, you know, we don't like the word necessarily, but there might've been that codependent, um, history. Um, there's a lot of things like, so when you are recovering from this, I know I'm jumping ahead, but we're jumping around. <laughs> um, when you're recovering from this, it's super important to get support, to look at how you got there. Um, and this mm -hmm. is after the defensive phase where, you know, cause it's super common to get out of this or be getting out of it and be very defensive about how, mm -hmm. how the person's not really a narcissist or they're not really a terrible person. And then also very defensive about, about how you got into it and that you're the victim and, and you are a victim. It's just after that, super important to look at how you got there so that you don't repeat the pattern. Yeah, you have to learn boundaries around empathy, um, I think, because there are people who just tend to give it a little bit more freely. And I don't want to pathologize empathy. The way that I think I approach the codependency piece is um, I believe it's more of a state than a trait. So I think sometimes the way it's talked about in mental health is it's, it's this trait of a person, which I think can be harmful because we can go through different stages of empathy when we are with abusers. And if the longer you're with someone, I truly believe you that you can shift into a state of co a codependency, but I don't think people necessarily start there all the time. Um, and, and depending on how we use it, for example, and if we're, we're straight, straight out the gate telling somebody to go to a CODA meeting, we're not doing our job because like Shannon says, there's a long healing process that needs to happen before that person can go, how do I not do this again? And I think where a lot of clinicians fail is they their anxiety to fix it goes straight to, okay, how can we make sure? And it's like, no, this person needs time. If someone comes into your therapeutic room and they're in a narcissistic, like, like Elizabeth Moss a year prior to this movie, yeah, let's say. If, if they come into your, if she comes into your office and she's in this abusive relationship and she's sought therapy for two reasons, two reasons, maybe one, because she's really troubled and she knows that she's got to do something. Yep. And two, because he's told her that she needs help yeah. and that she's a problem yeah. and that she's, and he's negatively contrasting, which is something that they do. They like make unnecessary comparisons, you know, to themselves, to others. They try to make you feel less than. And so you need help. You, I'm not going to therapy with you for us as a couple. Can I add a third? But you go. Mm -hmm. The third would be, how do I fix him? Yes. And then it's, yes. And they're asking the question. What can I do? I, he wouldn't come to couples therapy. So I'm here to figure out some strategies so that we right. can get better. So those are three big ones that I've seen in particular. Mm -hmm. There's plenty more, but those are three big ones. And so Elizabeth Moss comes into, you know, your room a year prior and says one of those or all three of them. You realize that you are a solid year or two if not longer before you even get to the part where you're helping her with a safety plan right? of how to go and where to go and how to remain safe and blah, 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 which we all um, are trained to do. But 
I mean, so you know, telling her to go to a CODA meeting, yeah, no, because guess what? He, that he or she is going to find out about the CODA meeting, want to go with her. <laughs> like, it's not going yeah. well, to work out. And it's also incredibly victim-blaming at the beginning. For it's, sure. It's not... It's not because one thing that, and this is something we were talking about before we were recording, is we we tend to, in, in the mental health field, one of our biggest blind spots is over-pathologizing trauma. So we have people who are have been through trauma and we're labeling it with all these other diagnoses, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, psychotic disorders, delusional disorders. And medicating it. And medicating <laughs> it. Um, and if we're overlooking the fact that somebody could be stuck in a, a trauma cycle um, and that's what's contributing to this, however you want to frame it, codependency or pathological empathy or whatever you want to say, poor boundaries, um, then, then we're missing it because it's the trauma that for, for I mean, these people are going to have post-traumatic rumination. They're going to talk to you about this person and where they thought things maybe could have gone different. You're going to hear them go on and on and on for a while. And if you stop that too soon, because you're, you, you want to stop them from talking about it. Now, clearly, eventually we want to move more into a productive way of approaching that story. But at the beginning, if you, because of your anxiety, if you cut that off, then you're essentially telling them, I don't really want to deal with your trauma right now. I just want to, I want to get to a solution. And this doesn't, just like with any other trauma, that person's may have to tell their story a handful of times. Oh yeah. And so it, on our side of things, it becomes a very, so yes, an impatient therapist, <laughs> or I would say a therapist who wants everyone to come into their therapeutic room in an action stage of change. That's right. Meaning ready to act, ready to move forward or maintenance. Like they've, they're acting, they're good. They're doing their thing. But if you expect every client to come into your room in an action stage of change, well, one, um, you're going to be really disappointed <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because you're actually, what's going to happen is it's going to cause compassion fatigue and it's going to cause you to feel as if you're not doing your job and it's going to demoralize you as a therapist because you're going to think like, what am I doing wrong? I mean, this is what new therapists will say to me. Like, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. They're not getting any better. They, you know, six months and she's still in this relationship. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. That has nothing to do with you for one. Yeah. <laughs> and two, you have a bad, uh, you have a bad treatment plan. You have a bad conceptualization of this case. And the focus is wrong. The agenda is wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. The, the plan is wrong. Is wrong. Yeah. Your, your, your conceptualization and your treatment of this case, while well-meaning, I think we need to go back to one and look at where you're at and, and reevaluate. So anyway, all that to say, if you happen to be a therapist or a young therapist or an old therapist, whatever, listening to this, it's like I, I would caution you against that. So being an impatient therapist with this kind of client is bad. So this is a population that you may not want to work with. And you almost have to think about it like you would work with anyone else in some form of addiction mm -hmm. because they're going to relapse. Here, Here's a big one I get too from clinicians, um, younger, newer clinicians that are working with this population is, oh, she went back to him. Yeah, she might five times. Yeah, the judgment. Or just the frustration in themselves, like we did all this work and now, oh, we have to, it's like, and she might go back a sixth and seventh time. Yeah, which I I, I would still use the word judgment probably yeah. because it's like you're judging, you're, you're making a judgment about it. You're yeah. not in the moment with That's that right. client. It's like more about judging your skills or their activity yeah. or whatever it is. And it's, so, it's not being present. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
So we got off on that. <laughs> yeah. But we are moving sort of into that next phase of which what he did, mm-hmm. um, we don't see as much of it, but the, the deval- devaluation um, is very jarring in this situation because she, you know, she j- breaks out in the middle of the night, hits all the alarms off. And the next thing you know is, you know, he's sleeping all peacefully. <laughs> and then you see his mask drop. You see him um, being very assaultive, whether it's verbally or, or physically, he's does not want her to get away in this house. There's all this security and, but you see this very quick change. Not that you see him much before that because he's sleeping, but you see him kind of get up like curious about where she is. And the second he knows that she has left, which is really it's his object, his possession has left. You see the rage and the anger and the, how dare you fool me? Right. The foolishness. I mean, cause they, they hate the humiliation. There's nothing. Maybe death is the only other thing where, you know, their mortality might be the only thing that's more insulting than feeling humiliated by their own victim. Yeah, I I always, um, well, you guys, Kathy definitely knows this, and you guys know this probably if you've listened to any of our other episodes on narcissism, which there have been many, because all the, all the true crime we talk about has some kind of narcissistic um, slant to it. But I, you know, I look at narcissistic personality as you know shame based so mm-hmm. you're talking about shame and everything they do is to resist shame is what she's yeah. is what kathy's talking about that's just the word i would use mm-hmm. um, it is it's so everything so the inflated sense of importance is to avoid knowing that nobody is more important than anybody else <laughs> and that they're not important just because they're smart and talented and an amazing scientist in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. The deep need for, you know, excessive attention and admiration that admiration and attention is to um, avoid feeling feelings of not being worthy or not being smart or not being beautiful. Yeah. Um, lack of empathy in o- of others is because you just, you, you can't have empathy for others if you don't have empathy for yourself. And so, there's no self there. There's no empathy for self. There's a, a punitive, critical, abusive voice that res- that is so harsh and shameful towards the narcissist inside. There's no way they can't there's tolerate. No they can't and tolerate they don't really see the other as an other either. No. Um, so there's that. It's like a mirror. If, if you're not <laughs> believing and being and behaving and thinking the way I am, then like you said, the mirror. Then um, you know, there, there's not going to be any of that. But uh, one of the things we see in this too, in that stage, is also the narcissist's worst nightmare is that they get discarded before they discard. And, and one of the reasons why uh, the empathy piece also doesn't play out is because empathy equates with an equal relationship of understanding and reciprocity, which narcissists will never allow themselves to have because there's a level of vulnerability there. So they're going to be doing the devaluing and the discarding, and they're going to be getting out hopefully before that happens to them. And in this situation, that humiliation and that shame that Shannon's talking about happens in that moment that everything that he felt he was in control of had been thrown back in his face. She left. And that is the ultimate injury is to be left, to be abandoned. See, I'm not good enough. All that whole voice you were just talking about. Yeah. It's very difficult to leave. Um, and there's a lot of things why we talk about a safety plan that we put into place mm-hmm. because there's a lot of things that unfortunately I think sometimes people don't get out of relationships like that because it is going to cause an enormous amount of havoc in your life depending on how long the relationship has gone 
through and how close you are. So in the situation of the invisible man, she's married. They live in the same house. Um, he's, uh, we find out later that he's been controlling the finances and the friends and everything for a, for a substantial amount of time. Now, some people get out of narcissistic relationships much earlier than that. They never live with them. They never have all of that going on. And so, you know, certainly less difficult, but also still difficult in the age of social media. And, you know, there's a changing your phone number, changing all your social media, you know, all that stuff that we incorporate into kind of a, a safety plan, which very much inconveniences the victim. And so, of course... Who and wants, also, who wants to do that? No one. <laughs> and also, I think um, for most people coming out of these relationships, the heart, when I'm talking to clients who are now in this discard phase, it's the if I block my number, or if I stop following them on social media, or if I cut out mutual friends, which are things you have to do, that really means it's over. And so it's often, and I work very slowly with clients through this phase because one, I had to do it and I understand how hard it is. Um, and I remember even talking to you about it going, oh, I don't, this is, and you, you're like, you'll do it when you're ready kind of thing. And because they have to do it when they're ready, because we know if it's possible that the only way to really heal is no contact. And that doesn't mean just blocking your phone number. That means emails, phone numbers. I got rid of mutual friends. I, it was everything. I basically had to build a fortress. Um, and a couple of mutual friends tried to stay in touch because we were friends and mm -hmm. they don't understand. And it was hard because then you're like, how do you explain to this person without it? Then getting back to the narcissist, then the narcissist is going to think you're thinking too much about him. You really kind of have to fall off the map. Um, in some ways it's like one of those movies where it's like a JLo movie where she goes and develops a whole new identity. Yeah. You really do in order to move on. And this is why it's much harder for people who share children and they have to maybe do more subtle, you know, um, they have to be, you know, demonstrate more neutrality and less conflict with the nurse, but they can't go no contact. And this is where when you don't, when you're unable to go no contact, it's really a lot harder to heal. Yeah. It's a difficult time. And, um, most people go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, and most people will have like moments of resiliency or strength where they do no contact. And then, um, two months later you hear a story about how there was contact and yeah. you just think, okay, that, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Just, let's just talk about that and see how you feel about it now. And and then a lot of times that conversation leads into uh, reestablishing the no contact because yep. there's a conversation around, okay, so there was a reason why you decided not to do this and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we go on from there. But that's just part of the process. Right. I, I've actually never had a friend or worked with a client that hasn't gone through that cycle of back mm -hmm. and forth. There's mm -hmm. a lot of ambivalence. Yeah. And so, I mean, in an average divorce, there's a lot of ambivalence where you go back and forth about your feelings. And honestly, that's when the most that is when the most destructive things happen. And so when they're yeah. in this stage, it's incredibly vulnerable because there's always the chance that they'll go back and then, then you're starting from there. Right. Because if they're in that state of vulnerability and they're not yet ready to completely build that fortress, the narcissist will get back in. Oh yes. Um, and, and that's, um, I, I think another thing that happens too, which is to me, the absolute definition of learned helplessness is the idea, it's a distortion, but the person actually believes that the only person who can remove the pain is the person who caused it. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that that is the true meaning of learned helplessness mm-hmm. of, of like, I have no control over, I only with the presence of that person will I feel better, which is incredibly false and part of the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. But when people get stuck in that withdrawal, that's where they're more likely to reestablish contact. And it's something I, I will use, I'll use that psychoeducation and with clients to, to prepare them for this is what you're going to feel. And this is going to be the easiest time for that person to come back and drag you back in. Yeah. It's, this is, this is difficult because I mean, there is this there, we've already described so much and I feel like there's a lot here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I totally understand if we've talked about things that you don't quite get or that we didn't flush out or that didn't quite make sense because I do think we're speaking in terms where maybe a lot of you will recognize the behavior in yourselves or your friends, but also we're talking about a lot of complex ideas. And so I just want to call attention to that and that, um, we will continue to talk about it. If you if you have a specific question about this topic, it, it's obviously something that Kathy and I um, are passionate about and know a lot about. And Kathy in particular has started um, teaching and coaching and training and speaking on these topics. And so we welcome your questions. Um, but I just I wanted to throw that in there. I'm not. Yeah, saying, it's, I'm not saying we're done. I just it's, you know. it's no, it is. It's complex and it's hard sometimes to. Um, really simplify it because it is an incredibly loaded. Um, I mean, we'd have dynamic. to do a six month, you know, yeah. Training. <laughs> educational series. Uh, on. I, I think that the, maybe the more just fundamental things are we're dealing with someone who from the very beginning will mirror you. They will become you. They will love bomb you. They will future fake and tell you everything you want to hear. And once they know they have you, then they start to do this push pull of, what I call the slot machine syndrome, which is this intermittent reinforcement, which means some days they're going to give you everything and the next day they're going to um, deprive you of everything. And so you become addicted to waiting for that next jackpot. Yeah, because kids will do that too. Yep. <laughs> and then you start to settle for the crumbs. And then this next thing you know is you're in, in the thick of it, completely addicted to this person. Um, and then out of nowhere, they can just up and leave they can have maybe started in a whole other life they've likely already been cheating on you if not with more than one person Um, and cheating also it doesn't always have to be a a sexual affair it can be um, cheating on you in other ways it can be going through your finances it can be triangulating or, or bringing another person into the relationship that takes away from there's so many different ways to really um define what that cheating could mean but they're not being faithful in one way or the uh, in one way or the other so they, it's this cycle and by the end of it the the victim really feels like they don't know what has happened to them they've completely lost their sense of self which is why they feel so incredibly sick and empty and terrorized from not having that person around anymore they don't know who they are without that person anymore and it takes a very long time, a lot of healing to find themselves again. But once they do, when they come out of, there's a really good book actually called Out of the Fog. When they come out of that proverbial fog, they come back stronger. And if, if, they, if we can get someone who's been through it to a place of understanding what happened, it can be really empowering. And they can move on to pick healthier partners, healthier friends, healthier lifestyles. And I know, I've, I've, I mean, 
for myself. I made a lot of meaning out of the suffering. In some ways, I'm, it's not that I'm happy I went through it, but my life drastically changed after I knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. And so having the understanding of it for people who are going through it or have been through it is really empowering. Yeah, like with any betrayal, you know, if you have a couple who, you know, someone has cheated on the other person, often the person that was cheated on um, perseverates on why, what -hmm. happened, why, how to conceptualize what happened. And that's just our, that is our brain's way of trying to make sense of our trauma. And sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. You have to work that out with your own therapist Mm -hmm. um, and how you process and what stage you're in. And I guess... I guess my bottom line would be that there are ways to recognize you're in a narcissistic in a relationship with a narcissist. So, you know, go to, you know, your own therapist and start to talk about it and say, you know, I'm kind of suspicious about this, or I heard Mm -hmm. this podcast where they were talking about it. And I'm kind of suspicious that maybe it doesn't have to be your partner could be a parent, which would be a really important Mm -hmm. relationship to investigate and know that you were raised by a narcissistic personality, because that very much informs who you are and how you go forward in your relationships. Um, Just know there are signs. And hopefully, you know, most therapists will recognize at least some of them and start to talk with you about it. Um, and then there's also, it takes a long, it takes a while. And then after you're out of the relationship, let's say, if that's what happens, then there's the, so then, then we're talking about trauma. Yeah. Then we're really talking about survival from trauma and the out of the fog title is so apt because you know that that person or whoever they were interviewing and researching with really actually knows mm-hmm. because if you're working with someone who's surviving this, there is a moment in time where they will experience a cloud lifting mm, and a gosh, fog yes. moving like across the horizon. Yeah. And there is this moment where there's this lifting of spirit and it feels as if the, you know, we talk a lot about horror on the show, um, but, you know, it feels as if like the hand, clenched hand from the grave that has come up and been around your neck for however long has like released and gone back into the ground and you feel this like lightness and the clouds part and it sounds very dramatic, but no, there is really a feeling. Does. It's a lightness for sure of, oh my God, I never, I remember thinking, when I finally got to that place, I remember thinking, I never thought I'd feel normal again. Mm-hmm. And then when you do, it's like you'd been holding your breath for however long right. it took you to get there. And sometimes it's very, and sometimes it's sort of the other way too, where it's very disorienting because you've never felt like that before. Mm-hmm. And so you very much want to go back to what was very familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why the going back and maybe sometimes never leaving because the feeling that lift and feeling that freedom can often be incredibly disorienting for someone who doesn't know how to tolerate being in control of their own life. Cause remember yeah. they've been controlled for however long it's yeah. been. So feeling the freedom to make your own decisions for a submissive personality, if that's what's happened, you know, you've been in a relationship for 20 years like this and then to come out of it. Oh my gosh. Very frightening. Mm-hmm. Very terrible, very hard. Yeah. Lots of support is needed. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it can be. And the shame can also kick in then too, which sure. is the, how the 
hell did I allow myself to waste that much time? That's right. So, yeah. We liked the Invisible Man, though. <laughs> I'm telling you, Elizabeth Moss has had a good she year so is, far. Oh, she's awesome. She's always been awesome, but she's, yeah, she's having a good year. She's like another Tony Collette for me, where it's like she just comes Whatever out. Whatever she's in, <laughs> she just comes out with these like really dark and and everything she touches is like wow, that was yeah. Her and her team make exceptional decisions about her projects, as far as I can tell. And and I think we would both recommend uh, seeing the Invisible Man not only for these types of issues because of course it's a metaphor, but I can tell you that even though that it's a little bit like there's some stuff that doesn't quite hold together the tension the fear you feel and the way they've done it and um and it's not what you think it is and if you've seen the trailer you have not seen the whole movie no. like when i no. saw the trailer i thought really gave guys? It away. oh yeah. my god yeah. like you told me the whole movie now why do i want to see it remember i said that to you and you're like trust me <laughs> i was like no because i said i watched like a 10 minute trailer i think i'm good and you're like no that's not no. remotely close to what happened <laughs> No, in fact, I will tell you, there are deleted scenes in the trailer. They worked very hard <laughs> to make you think you saw the whole movie, mm -hmm. but you did not. No. So just know that um, and see it. It's very interesting. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Yet another conversation about narcissism. narcissism. <laughs> we we seem to do that, but we we also get a lot of feedback that people like it, so... On we go. Um, thank you so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>